History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and in this episode, we will conclude our discussion of the Huns and their most famous leader, Attila. We will also take a look at the legacy left behind by a people group that was only prominent on the world stage for about eight years, and how almost 1,500 years later, they stay lodged in the global memory. Oh, and how a stork doomed a city. Can't forget that. Let's get started. We ended our last episode with Attila the Hun meeting with the Bishop of Troyes and giving himself the nickname the Scourge of God, God's Punishment. We also noted that Attila possibly believed that he had been divinely chosen for this role. It's also possible that he said this because Attila knew that he was speaking to a member of the clergy and that it would greatly unsettle the bishop and give him cause to fear. There is a psychological component here, where if Attila could get the leader of the town to panic, then it would be easier for the Hunnic troops to take the city. The plan seems to have backfired, though, because the bishop said, quote, If indeed you are the scourge of God, do only that which God allows you. End quote. That was a different response. We're told by our friend Gregory of Tours that Attila was moved by the words and saintliness of the bishop, and the Huns turned around and left. They headed for the city of Orléans, leaving Troyes untouched. Upon arriving at Orléans, we are told that Attila and his army laid siege to the city, battering at the walls with the rams. Things looked bleak for the inhabitants of Orléans. At this point, the Huns had been turned back from a number of cities by saintly figures or by the hand of God, and they were eager for plunder and shiny things. The panicking citizens approached Bishop Anianus, asking what they were to do. According to Gregory of Tours, Anianus told them to trust God and to fall on their faces and begin praying. Looking out from the city walls, the people saw nothing but angry Huns. They prayed again and looked again, no sign of anything to come and help them. They prayed a third time and looked, and off in the distance they saw a cloud of dust rising from the road. Gregory says, quote, The walls were already shaking under the shock of the rams and on the point of falling, when behold, Isis came and Theodoric, king of the Goths, and Thorismund, his son, with their armies." The city had been saved, and, conveniently for me, two of Attila's major rivals have entered the story. Let me introduce you. First, we have Theodoric I. He was the king of the Goths, as Gregory mentioned. Now, the Goths that have been mentioned so far and from here on out are not the Goths that you encounter today at the mall or at a concert or something. The Goths that I am referring to were a large group of Germanic people that split into multiple branches, and the branch that we're concerned about in this episode is the Visigoths. To say that the Visigoths had a tumultuous relationship with Rome would be a bit of an understatement. Sometimes they made treaties with the Romans, and other times they were fighting with them. In 410, about 40 years before our story takes place, Alaric, the first king of the Visigoths, was able to capture and sack Rome itself. Theodoric, the king of the Visigoths in our story, had made a reluctant alliance with the Western Roman Empire's general Isis. Earlier in his reign, Theodoric had tried to expand his territory south toward Rome, but was stopped by an army of Huns led by Isis, the man who was now allied with him. Theodoric also may have been the inspiration for Rohan's Theoden king in J.R.R. Tolkien's excellent work, The Lord of the Rings. Flavius Isis was the other main figure to oppose Attila at this time. Because he is a Roman, we know more about him. In his youth, Isis had been held as a hostage of both the Huns and the Goths, a common practice designed to ensure the good behavior of his people in negotiations with those respective groups. 
His time with the Huns gave him the knowledge that he would need in order to deal with the Huns militarily and politically. Gregory of Tours describes him, saying that he was, quote, of middle height, of manly condition, well-shaped so that his body was neither too weak nor too weighty, active in limb, most dexterous horseman, skilled in shooting the arrow, and strong in using the spear, end quote. Gregory also goes on to say that he was, quote, famous in the arts of peace, free from avarice and greed, endowed with mental virtues, one who never deviated at the instance of evil instigation for, from his own purpose, most patient of wrongs, a lover of work, dauntless in perils, able to endure the hardships of hunger, thirst, and sleeplessness, end quote. As mentioned already, Aishas was able to command the loyalty of Hun soldiers, and thanks to them, he was able to become consul three times. Procopius, the Byzantine scholar, declared him to be the last of the Romans, a designation that was used to describe anyone who was thought to embody the ancient Roman values. And given Gregory's list of all his virtues, it's easy to see why he got that title. Now, since there were over ten people given that description, the term last of the Romans is certainly an important one, but obviously not an exclusive one. At the time of our story, Aishas and Theodoric were allied together against the threat of the Hun invasion. They weren't really all that thrilled about the arrangement, but it was more of a the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of scenario. For Attila, the failure to capture Orléans represented yet another blip on his win-loss streak. City after city had fallen to the Huns, but suddenly Paris, Troyes, and now Orléans had resisted. And now there was this Isis and Theodoric to deal with. Attila knew that a big battle would have to be fought at some point, and that if he won, he would be free to pillage and ransack Europe to his heart's content. If he lost, well, he was Attila, and Attila didn't lose. He did go and consult his shamans and soothsayers, though, looking for any kind of knowledge on the outcome of the major battle that he knew was coming. Now the shaman shamaned and the soothsayers said their suits, and they came up with an alarming prophecy. In the big battle that Attila, again, knew was coming, the Huns would meet with disaster. But they also said that the commander of the enemy would die in the battle. I imagine Attila saying something like, so be it, and commanding his army to head north in search of the perfect battlefield. Attila and his men found the perfect battlefield in an area known as the Catalonian Fields. Like so much in this story, we don't know exactly where the battlefield was, but we do know that Attila wanted to have as much open space as possible so that his cavalry had enough room to move around. In any case, the coming battle would be known as either the Battle of Chalons or the Battle of the Catalonian Fields. For clarity, I'll be going with the Catalonian Fields name. It sounds better. Anyway, Aishas' forces had followed the Hun army. There were a few small skirmishes here and there, but the main battle hadn't begun yet. Jordanes tells us that Attila got up and gave a speech to his men on the eve of the battle, saying, quote, Here you stand after conquering mighty nations and subduing the world. I therefore think it foolish for me to goad you with words, as though you were men who had not been proved in action. Let a new leader or an untried army resort to that. It is not right for me to say anything common, nor ought you to listen. For what is war but your usual custom? Or what is sweeter for a brave man than to seek revenge with his own hand? It is a right of nature to glut the soul with vengeance. Let us then attack the foe eagerly, for they are ever the bolder who make the attack. End quote. After making some remarks about the futility of making alliances and how scared the Romans were, Attila continued, quote, 
Then on to the fray with stout hearts, as is your wont. Despise their battle lines, attack the Elans, smite the Visigoths. Seek swift victory in that spot where the battle rages, for when the sinews are cut, the limbs soon relax, nor can the body stand when you have taken away the bones. Let your courage rise and your own fury burst forth. End quote. Now, there's more about how awesome the Huns were and how bad the Romans were, but finally, Jordanes tells us that Attila ended his speech by saying, quote, I shall hurl the first spear at the foe. If any man can stand at rest while Attila fights, he is a dead man. End quote. And yes, he was monologuing. If you're thinking that this is a pretty eloquent speech for a supposedly illiterate and barbaric leader, you're not alone. But again, keep in mind that there is a bias playing out right now. Actually, this kind of thing happens quite frequently in the ancient sources. Speeches are given to enemies when there is no possible way for the writers to know what they would have said. So you have to wonder what is going on in the sources that would, they would take so much time to do something like this. My guess is that the writers either like the drama of a good, inspiring speech, or they want to essentially culture up the enemy to make them a more worthy opponent for their guys. You know, it looks better for posterity that the Romans and their allies defeated a cunning and dangerous foe rather than a stinking, unorganized mass of horse archers going bar, 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 or sounding like the Tasmanian devil. It makes it look better for your guys and for your image abroad. Sort of a, ooh, listen to how intelligent their leader is. If our Roman armies could defeat him, I know you don't want to mess with us. We're too good. That kind of thing. Alright, so the Catalonian Fields. The Battle of the Catalonian Fields took place in June 451, and it has been described as both an international conflict and by historian Edward Creasy as one of the 15 decisive battles in the world. Now a quick note before going too much further. Be careful with the word international here. This is not what we think of with today's definition of the word nation, with the set borders, governments, and infrastructures, and all that. These are nations in the sense of people groups from all over the place coming together to fight in this battle. Like we mentioned in the last episode, Attila was able to command the loyalty of those he conquered, which was a lot of people at this point. The, this battle was one of the last major military acts that the Western Roman Empire would engage in before its collapse. To get a sense of the scale of the battle and the supposed numbers of soldiers present, we turn to Jordanes again, who says that the night before the battle, a skirmish broke out between some of the Roman Frankish soldiers and some of the Huns' Gepid soldiers. Jordanes reports that this skirmish left 15,000 dead on the battlefield, but again, there's absolutely no way to know if this is true. The following day, the main battle began. Aetius and his allies occupied a small hill, while Attila and his forces occupied a central position on the field surrounding the hill. After the Huns fired off a large arrow barrage, the hand-to-hand -hand fighting started. Cue the Mortal Kombat soundtrack. Jordanes tells us that the hand-to-hand -hand fighting was, quote, fierce, confused, monstrous, unrelenting, end quote, and that a nearby stream ran red with blood so that, quote, those whose wounds drove them to slake their parching thirst drank water mingled with gore, end quote. Into the midst of this chaos rode King Theodoric. Trying to encourage his men, he was instead thrown from his horse and killed, either by a thrown spear or by being trampled by other horses. Jordanes tells us that after the battle, his body was found where the dead lay thickest. With his death, Theodoric had unknowingly fulfilled the prophecies of the Hun shamans that we mentioned earlier. His death would lead 
into a Visigothic power grab that will play into things a little bit later. And by the way, if you need a band name, Visigothic power grab isn't bad. Several attacks, counterattacks, and arrow volleys later, the sun began to set on a battlefield littered with the dead. As the opposing armies regrouped that night, Aetius had to consider how the events of the day would impact his strategy for the defense of Rome. The battle itself had essentially been a stalemate, and more fighting would almost certainly be on the agenda for the following day. But there was the matter of Theodoric's death to take into account, and, more importantly, how Theodoric's death would affect the balance of power in Western Europe for the Roman Empire. Aetius's main goal in all of this was to maintain the power balance that would be most beneficial for the Romans. Remember that the Romans and the Goths were allied for the time against a common enemy. If the Huns were totally destroyed by the Goths, then there would be no one to stop the Goths from invading the weak Roman Empire. Remember also that Attila and his forces were able to wreak havoc in Western Europe for as long as they did simply because Rome itself was too weak militarily to stop them. On the flip side, if the Huns destroyed the Goths, then Rome's nearest potential ally was gone as well. And on the flip-flip side, if the meager Roman forces were destroyed, then the empire was toast, as these soldiers were some of the last battle-ready armies that the empire had. You can see the dilemma Aetius was in. Go all out and fight again with the possibility of getting destroyed and leaving the way open for yet another barbarian invasion of Rome? Or maybe withdraw back to Rome, let the Visigothic leadership scenario play out, and hope that the Huns would withdraw as well to recover after all of the losses they had suffered in the first day of battle. What to do, what to do. Thorismund, Theodoric's son, helped in the decision. He went to Aetius to ask his advice in the Visigothic power struggle question. Aetius, I imagine, eagerly seized the opportunity. He suggested to Thorismund that if the Visigoths stayed on the field against Attila, then Thorismund's brothers might hear of Theodoric's death and take over leadership, meaning that Thorismund would have to essentially fight a civil war to secure himself as the new Visigothic king. I imagine that Aetius was kind of like an older brother or something that is trying to influence his younger sibling to do something without making it look like he was trying to get him to do something. Sort of like a, you don't have to, but if you did, you know. Listening to the older and wiser Aetius, Thorismund and his army went home. With the balance of power in Western Europe for the moment intact, Aetius and his troops went home as well. Of course, Attila didn't know any of this was going on behind the scenes. He woke up the next morning and noticed that the Visigoths were missing. Thinking that this was some sort of an elaborate trick for the tricksy Romans to catch him unaware, Attila and his army stayed in defensive positions in their camp for a couple of days, waiting for an attack that never came. Finally, the Hun forces began to withdraw back to the Danube River. The Battle of the Catalonian Fields was over. But wait a minute. Who won the battle? Ultimately, it's difficult to say, as there aren't any real losers, and there aren't any real winners either. Attila and his forces were stopped, but they weren't defeated. On their way back to Hungary, they continued to loot and take what they could while giving nothing back, like they had always done before. The Visigoths had lost King Theodoric, but they had a ready-made replacement in Thorismund, and the majority of their army was left intact. The Romans still had Aetius and a sort of peace in their frontier going for them, along with maintaining that balance of power we talked about. Aetius had done what he needed to do. I guess the only losers of the battle were those unfortunate enough to be killed in it. According to historian Patrick Howarth, legends say that the ghosts of those who were killed continued to fight on for several days. 
So what now? Attila and his army returned to Hungary, but it wasn't long before he was again demanding more shiny things from Constantinople. Emperor Martian, the new emperor who had taken over after his predecessor Theodosius fell off his horse, wasn't about to give in to those demands. Attila threatened war, but in reality, wasn't able to seriously threaten the Eastern Roman Empire, and Attila probably knew it. Instead, Attila turned his attention once again back to the West. There was still the matter of Honoria and her wedding proposal to deal with. He had claimed half the Western Roman Empire as his dowry, but that only worked if he had Honoria's hand. He would deal with Martian and Constantinople later. In the early spring of 452 AD, barely a year after the Battle of the Catalonian Fields, Attila was on the move again, this time heading straight for Italy. No more messing around in Gaul. His troops entered Italy and laid siege to the fortress of Aquileia. Now if you look at a map, you can find Aquileia in the northeastern portion of Italy, a little ways to the west of the modern-day border with Slovenia. So a Slovenia's distance away from today's Hungarian border, and according to Google Maps, less than 300 miles away from the Danube River, where Attila's main camp was. At the time, Aquileia was one of the larger cities in Italy, and served as a strategic frontier fortress guarding access into the Italian peninsula proper. Whoever controlled Aquileia most likely controlled northern Italy. According to Procopius, the city took a lot longer to fall than the Huns had anticipated. Attila had apparently tried everything to take the city by force, but couldn't find a weak spot to break in and take the city. Despairing, Attila gave up the siege and ordered his men to make preparations to leave at dawn. The following morning, just as the Huns were packing up, a bird betrayed the city. Now it's a bit long-winded, but Procopius tells the story this way, quote, The following day, about sunrise, the barbarians had raised the siege and were already beginning their departure, when a single male stork, which had a nest on a certain tower of the city wall and was rearing its nestlings there, suddenly rose and left the place with his young. The father stork was flying, but the little storks, since they were not quite ready to fly, were at times sharing their father's flight and at times riding on his back, and thus they flew off and away from the city. When Attila saw this, for he was most clever at comprehending and interpreting all things, he commanded the army, they say, to remain still in the same place, adding that the bird would never have gone flying off at a random time from there with his nestlings, unless he was prophesying some evil would come to the place at no distant time. Thus they say, the army of the barbarians settled down to the siege once more, and not long after that, a portion of that wall, the very part which held the nest of that bird, for no apparent reason, fell down, and it became possible for the enemy to enter the city at that point, and thus Aquileia was captured by storm. End quote. Dumb bird taking care of its family and making the wall fall down. The Huns utterly destroyed Aquileia. It never again rose to the heights of prominence again. Today, the city is home to a little less than 3,500 people, a far cry from the estimated population of about 100,000 during the 2nd century AD. Legend says that the survivors established the city of Venice in the swampy areas to the south, in part because the Hunnic horses couldn't traverse the swampy land. Instead of heading south toward the Western Roman Empire's capital city of Ravenna, Attila turned his armies west. Once again, there wasn't really any army in Italy to oppose him. Aetius, who had so skillfully dealt with the Huns the previous year, was powerless to stop the advancing horde of Hun warriors. 
Aishas had by this time lost the support of the Alans and the Visigoths, who refused to come to the aid of Rome when there was no immediate threat to their own people. The Roman general only had a tiny force available to him, in part because the Roman citizens continued to flatly refuse to man their own armies. They chose instead to pay for outsiders to fight for their defense. Emperor Valentinian III was no help to his general and offered no resistance to the Hun army, refusing to send Aishas and what little armed forces that Aishas was in command of. It is possible that the emperor had inherited his mother's distrust of Aishas, though there isn't any way to know for sure. Having turned down Aishas's proposed military plans, Valentinian instead went to Rome, possibly to try to figure out some way to oppose the advancing Hun armies. Not moving on Rome just yet, Attila captured the modern-day city of Milano, which had previously served as the former capital of the Western Roman Empire. While walking around in the palaces that remained standing in the city, Attila noticed a painting that depicted former Roman rulers sitting on thrones while their enemies prostrated themselves on the ground and offered tribute. Attila decided to have the painting altered to show the Roman emperors emptying bags of gold at his feet, Nothing like a little propaganda to further ego. Unfortunately for him and for us, the painting has not survived into the present day. A curious thing happened upon Attila's arrival at the Mincio River near the town of Mantua. Attila's advance into the heart of Italy began to falter, thanks in part to his shamans foretelling that Attila would suffer the same fate as Alaric I of the Goths if he sacked Rome. Now, Alaric had conquered Rome in 410 AD, only to die shortly after taking the city. This hesitation allowed the Romans to put together a diplomatic envoy and send it to the marauding king. This was no ordinary diplomatic envoy, however. This one was headed by Pope Leo I, the Bishop of Rome. Pope Leo I would serve as the head negotiator in this brief but famous meeting with the Hunnic king. No written record survives of what was said between Pope and Hun, because at this point, eh, why not? Whatever the actual dialogue, the Pope was somehow able to convince Attila not to attack Rome. Legends and stories quickly arose as the news of this incredible miracle spread. Some said that the Pope's speeches were powerful enough to excite Attila to the veneration and respect of God. Others claimed that Attila was visited by visions of St. Peter and St. Paul, who threatened to kill him if he did not accept Pope Leo's prayers and requests. Some historians suggest that Pope Leo may have bribed Attila, while others theorize that the Huns were suffering from plague. Jordanes describes the meeting between Pope Leo and Attila in this way, quote, Therefore, while Attila's spirit was wavering in doubt between going and not going, and he still lingered to ponder the matter, an embassy came to him from Rome to seek peace. Pope Leo himself came to meet him in the Ambulean district of the Veneti at the well-traveled ford of the river Mincius. Then Attila quickly put aside his usual fury, turned back on the way he had advanced from beyond the Danube, and departed with the promise of peace. But above all, he declared and avowed, with threats, that he would bring worse things upon Italy unless they sent him Honoria, the sister of the Emperor Valentinian, and daughter of Augusta Placidia, with her due share of the royal wealth. End quote. Whatever the true reason, Attila and his forces retraced their steps out of Italy to the relief, no doubt, of the rest of the peninsula. The Western Roman Empire was safe from the Hun threat for now. With his forces back in Hungary and recovering, Attila turned his attention to the man who had previously defied him and ceased to provide tribute, Emperor Martian in Constantinople. 
Jordanes mentions that Attila was annoyed that he wasn't out fighting someone somewhere, and so he began to make preparations in 453 for yet another war in Constantinople. During all of these preparations, Attila married a beautiful young girl named Ildiko. The wedding must have been spectacular, since Jordanes reports much merrymaking, and that Attila was heavy with wine and sleep. At some point during the night, the drunken Attila is supposed to have suffered either a hemorrhage or a severe nosebleed and drowned ingloriously in his own blood. Jordan says, quote, On the following day, when a great part of the morning was spent, the royal attendant suspected some ill, and after a great uproar, broke in the doors. There they found the death of Attila, accomplished by an effusion of blood, without any wound, and the girl with downcast face, weeping beneath her veil. End quote. The king of the Huns, who had brought so much fear, devastation, and death on the peoples of Europe and Asia, had died in his own bed as he slept. If Jordanes is to be believed, on the night that Attila died, Emperor Martian in Constantinople is supposed to have had a dream wherein some god visited the emperor and showed him the broken bow of Attila. He goes on to say that the thought of Attila was so great that, quote, the gods announced his death to rulers as a special boon, end quote. Jordanes also gives an account of Attila's burial. His body was laid under a silk pavilion in the middle of the open plains. Horsemen galloped around the body as a hymn was sung telling of Attila's greatness. The men cut off much of their hair and gashed their faces open so that the king would be lamented by the blood of warriors and not the cries of women. Then we are told that, in the night, Attila's body was laid in a golden coffin along with such treasures as weapons, gems, and other ornaments. This golden coffin was placed inside of a silver coffin, which was then placed into an iron coffin. This Matryoshka doll of coffins was placed into the ground. In a foretaste of the burial of Genghis Khan centuries later, those who buried the king were themselves killed so that the riches that Attila was buried with would not be found. Attila's burial site remains unfound to this day, waiting to be discovered. Attila's passing led to an almost immediate fracturing of the Hun Confederacy. This comes as hardly a surprise, given that the empire Attila built was made of those that the Huns had conquered and subjugated. Harmonious relationships were highly unlikely, and once the unifying presence of the king was removed, divisions would naturally arise as those close to him sought to divide the spoils of his conquests. Attila ruled the Huns for only eight years, but his name is still recognizable today, 1,500 years later. He threatened Rome and Constantinople and demanded tribute from both emperors. But he was not the greatest conqueror the world has ever seen. He was feared and respected by his enemies, but this was not unique to the Hun ruler. Whether he should be included on the list of world's greatest rulers or world's greatest military commanders is up for debate. And yet, he remains in the public memory as a barbarian, and is equated with the violent and cruel imagery that that carries with it. Within a year of Attila's death, in 454, Aetius was also dead, killed by the hand of Valentinian himself, and subsequently relegated to the obscure corners of history. Emperor Valentinian III was dead a year after that, in 455, assassinated by men loyal to Aetius. Priscus tells us that as the emperor lay dead on the ground, a swarm of bees came and sucked up all his blood. The Western Roman Empire finally crumbled in the year 476 AD. Historian Patrick Howarth notes that Attila's death brought the end of the short-lived Hunnic Empire, while Aetius's sped up the end of the Western Roman Empire. The empire in the east, based in Constantinople, would continue to survive until 1453 when it fell to the Ottoman Turks.
Yet, like I said, of all these, it is Attila and his legend that have lived on through the centuries. He can be found in the mythology of the Scandinavian and Germanic sagas, speaking with the likes of the Norse hero Sigurd and the Volsungs. He can also be found in Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle. In Bram Stoker's famous tale Dracula, Count Dracula claims that Attila's blood runs in his veins. And Attila has appeared in numerous movies, shows, and books, almost always playing the uncivilized barbarian stereotype. In the beginning of World War I, in 1914, the German-led Central Powers were equated with the Huns in the popular imagination. Rudyard Kipling, the guy who wrote The Jungle Book, helped to popularize the notion that all Germans were Huns. Far from being offended, the Germans welcomed the comparison, seeing in themselves a sort of kindred spirit with the people who had ravaged their countryside centuries earlier. This comparison seems to have been widely accepted as evidenced by the announcement of the German surrender with the headline, quote, Hun Surrender Certain, end quote, appearing on the front page of the News of the World newspaper on November 10, 1918. But in Hungary, Attila is treated quite differently. There he is seen as a national hero and venerated as an enlightened ruler. According to Patrick Howarth's research, the name Attila is quite common in Hungary today. For a few short years, Attila and his Huns were able to dramatically insert themselves onto the world stage. They shook the foundations of Roman power, the reverberations of which can still be felt in the modern day whenever a barbarous antique villain is required. Attila's reign, though short-lived, dramatically changed the course of history and helped to hasten the fall of a withering Roman Empire. In that way, Attila and his people certainly proved themselves to be the scourge of God. Alright, that's where we will end our story and wrap things up in this small two-part series. Before we go, I want to take a moment to answer two very similar questions that were sent to me after the last episode. Basically, both questions involved the appearance of St. Peter and St. Paul at the town of Metz, and whether or not those two long-deceased saints were actually physically present to prevent the church from being destroyed. Now, the account that I used came from Gregory of Tours' work, The History of the Franks, Book 2, Chapter 6. I'll post a link to the translation that I used in the Facebook group, and I'll encourage you to read it for yourself. To summarize that text, Gregory says that a man of faith saw the martyr Stephen conferring with St. Peter and St. Paul. In the vision, Stephen asked Peter and Paul to spare the oratory, or the small chapel, that is dedicated to him, Stephen, from the Huns. Peter and Paul tell Stephen to go in peace, and that his oratory would be the only thing untouched in the city, which, by the accounts we have, turned out to be true. So, based on the text itself, and reading that pretty carefully, it doesn't appear that Peter, Paul, or Stephen were actually physically there in the city, but they appeared in visions. Similarly, in this episode, the idea that Peter and Paul appeared to Attila when he was conferring with Pope Leo appears to have been added into the story much later. I mention this idea since it is mentioned in the books that I read to prepare for these last two episodes, but as far as I know, there are no contemporary accounts that mentions Peter and Paul by name and being there. If you know of one, please let me know. Thanks again to everyone who has listened and supported the podcast. Keep spreading the word and leaving reviews and recommendations on iTunes and on social media. It really helps get the show noticed. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, remember you can always get in touch with me by email at historyontheside at gmail.com and through Facebook and Instagram. Just search History on the Side Podcast and enjoy. And remember that you must be swift as the coursing river with all the force of a great typhoon 
and with all the strength of a raging fire, mysterious as the dark side of the moon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.